Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get us started. So if you can hear the sound of my voice, clap once. If you can hear the sound of my voice, clap two times. If you can hear the sound of my voice, clap three times. Okay, so as you're finding your seats, uh, I think Lawrence will come down and if you somehow ended up in here without a packet or without a pen, uh, here he is, just kind of like hold your hand up and he can make sure that you have what you need. Um, and I definitely recommend kind of using that to, to follow along, even if you never, uh, you know, look at this again. And I know uh, I, for one, don't remember often studying my pizza theology packets after the fact. Uh, there just has been a lot of research that writing, and especially writing by hand, uh, helps us remember things, that we have to kind of synthesize things in our own mind. So use this to capture not every piece of information today, but things that you find are, are helpful and stand out to you, and I think that will make today more valuable. I'm really excited to share uh, this pizza theology with you guys. We've done a number of book studies over the years, and we have done a pizza theology in the past on the second coming, and we've done some on like heaven and hell, but we've never done just a book study on the book of Revelation. And I think that Revelation is one of the most commonly ignored books of the Bible, uh, or it's either ignored or very focused on. Um, but I think we often ignore it out of fear uh, or out of the assumption that it's too complicated or totally unintelligible to us. Uh, it's also one of the books that's probably the most misused in the Bible. And people, uh, you know, take uh, a book of fantastic imagery and, and ultimately kind of warp it to mean whatever they want it to mean or whatever suits their purposes. Cults and splinter groups have used this book extensively, and you find a lot of the groups that have sort of splintered off from the Orthodox Christian faith often have a fixation on the book of Revelation at the center of their teaching. Uh, it's also been used to promote, justify, or even reject all sorts of political and economic positions uh, throughout time, and, and the more you become aware of the book, the more you might begin to become aware of that. Um, and so it seems like sometimes those who write and talk the most about this book, who use it the most in their teaching, are people who are least capable of using it with much wisdom. And that means that the voices that we hear most often about Re Revelation are not necessarily the most reliable voices. G.K. Chesterton is a great uh, Catholic thinker who has gone to be with the Lord said, though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And so, you know, this has been a book that has, has gotten some wild uh, messages from it over the history of our faith. But I think that the people who have been dangerous with this book and in their use of it were that way because they never learned to study it very well. And so our goal today, uh, the ones of us that will be uh, sharing with you, is to help you understand the book of Revelation better, hopefully to remove some of your fear in approaching it. As we, we did that student survey a few weeks ago, and, and one of the overwhelming things that I saw in that was that when people, when I asked, what are, what's your uh, emotional response to, to the book of Revelation, they sort of either went to like excitement or fear. 
And I don't know that either of those is what John was going for when he wrote the Revelation. So we want to remove some of that fear. We want to equip you to rightly handle uh, this part of God's word, this final word from God in the scripture. And in learning and refining our skills here, I think you'll be better equipped to rightly handle the rest of God's word as well. But a word of warning as we launch into this, um, none of us are experts in the book of Revelation. Uh, We are people who've studied the scripture and who've researched these things and thought a lot about them. Uh, But we're not experts, but we are pastors like John who wrote this book. We don't know everything about Revelation, about the end times, or when Christ will come back. And our goal isn't to give you all knowledge about this book, nor was that John's goal in writing it, to give you all the answers to your questions. Our goal today is to help you hear John's message clearly and hopefully hear whatever message the Spirit has for you. And as Revelation likes to repeat over and over again, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's going to be my prayer for us today. So let's pray. God, I pray that your spirit would move, uh, that he would blow in our lives uh, and move through us and around us, and that we would have attentive ears listening to what it is that he's saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to start with kind of a brief introduction to this book. And I think that probably one of the most helpful ways is just to start by asking some basic questions about the book. So my first question, see if I get this working. Nope. Okay, hold on. Maybe this. Okay, let's see. Here we go. Who went to things? But who, I think the first question is, who wrote the book of Revelation? John wrote the book of Revelation. So when we, when we get to this name John, we're actually left with quite a few options of what John are we talking about? Because the New Testament has a bunch of different Johns. Uh, we know that it's not John the Baptist or John the Baptizer because he dies partway through the story in the Gospels before Jesus. Um, This is also not John Mark, who uh, we see in Paul's ministry and who wrote the Gospel of Mark. But we do have John the Apostle, uh, the one who's called the beloved uh, disciple of Jesus. He wrote uh, the Gospel of John and the the letter 1 John. But then there's another John, potentially, uh, 2nd and 3rd John are both written Uh, from someone who calls himself John the Elder. And there's a lot of debate over whether John the Elder and John the Apostle are the same person or two different people. Uh, So it might be this John the Elder, and it might be the Apostle John that wrote this this book. Uh, Traditionally, this has been identified as as being written by the Apostle John. So someone who spent uh, personal time with Jesus and had a close relationship with him Uh, A lot of the early church fathers, including um, Justin Martyr, one of the earliest of the the writing church fathers, thought this was from the Apostle John, and he was much closer to that time and place than we. But in favor of, of maybe it was this other person, this John the Elder, in the book itself, uh, John never refers to himself as an apostle. He does mention the apostles at times, but always sort of refers to them uh, in the past and doesn't really include himself. He does in the book claim to be a prophet, and that's the focus here. And so uh, that would be one, one thing. 
A quick note that I would say uh, is that the Greek that Revelation is written in is not good. Um, you know, we maybe imagine because we read a Bible translation and they, they go through and they sort of, you know, decide like, we're going to write this at an eighth grade reading level, you know, for English. And so then they just sort of flatten everything out and it all sort of sounds like it came from the same person. But this one is not good. Uh, one famous commentator, William Barclay, uh, said this is easily the worst Greek of the entire New Testament. Uh, and what we know from that is that this was, whoever wrote this, this John was probably a Palestinian Jew because his grammar is deeply influenced by the Semitic languages of Hebrew and Aramaic. Greek was pretty much definitely not his first language. And that's, even though he knew how to speak it and knew how to write in it, um, but Hebrew or Aramaic was probably his first language. And so because of that, we see that the writing style and quality of writing is very different from the Gospel of John and those letters. But that could also just mean that a scribe was involved in writing that Gospel uh, and those letters and wasn't in writing this book. Uh, and we see that sometimes in, in Paul's letters and things. In Romans, we even see the, the scribe Tertius who wrote it actually writes his own little greeting in chapter 16. So in one case, we actually know who wrote down the letter that Paul supposedly wrote. And what's unclear uh, as we go through is that, uh, you know, to what degree were these scribes just taking dictation and to what degree were they sort of helping in the process? Uh, so that if John, as maybe someone who didn't speak Greek as his first language, had a Greek scribe, that someone's cleaning up that language. Uh, because John's gospel is, is well written in Greek, uh, though pretty simple, but this one is not very well written. Um, so yeah. Uh, but I would just say, in the end, it doesn't really matter, in a sense, who wrote it, which John. Because what matters is what was written and what was accepted as scripture and was passed down to us. It wasn't uh, accepted because it claimed a very specific John. It was accepted because of its force and power in the church. And I would say it doesn't matter because ultimately this book tells us it is not the revelation of John, as we sometimes call it, but as chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, or the revelation from Jesus Christ. It was for the church. It was ultimately delivered through John, but it is the revelation of Jesus. And so in a sense, what we have in Revelation are the last words, the last recorded written words of Jesus to his people. It openly claims to be a prophetic revelation. It claims to be sacred, that we have to, to carefully care for how we use this book. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. There's something holy about it. It claims to be essential, that the church needs to hear this over and over again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so ultimately it claims that we'll be blessed by reading it. So whichever John writes the book of Revelation, this John assumes, I'm going to say, three different roles in writing the book. And the first is that John 
is a pastor. We see in chapter 1 that John is writing, not just generally, but to seven churches. So it isn't just a long book of prophecies. It starts and ends as a letter. And it starts and ends like other Greek letters and like other letters in our New Testament. It has a two. And so it's written to seven specific churches. And as John introduces himself, he refers to himself as their brother and their companion in suffering. And then he goes on to speak to them with familiarity. We see, especially in chapters 2 and 3, that he knows each of these churches. He knows their strong points, and he knows their weak points. He knows the temptations that they're facing as they try to live as Christians in a broken world. And so he's pastoring them. He has a message for them that he thinks is going to build them up. And John is a prophet for sure. But the reason that I don't want to highlight that word, even though it's the one John uses, is because what does that word mean to us versus what does that word mean to him? And I don't want to use a word that I think will sort of lead us astray in terms of what we expect when we read the book and how we read the book. Not at all because John used the wrong word. Obviously, he used the right word. But because we have some wrong ideas about what that word means. Often when we hear the word prophet, we think much more like Nostradamus or something writing. We don't think of a pastor. We don't think of someone who knew the people they were writing to and wrote something important to them. So think about what do you think when you hear the word prophet? What do you think the average person thinks? See, as a prophet... John does not see himself as doing anything new here. He sees himself as a continuation, as one standing firmly in the themes and the visions and messages of the Old Testament prophets. That he's speaking old truths anew to a new generation. The New Testament church community needs to hear these things. And we see that because he just constantly is using those Old Testament prophets' messages. He's weaving them into a new message. I think John sees all of the messages of the Old Testament prophets as finding their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ and the events that were going on around him. But it's important for us to realize that John did not write them a confusing book of images and nonsense. He wrote what the Spirit directed him that would minister to them in their current situation. He addressed them in much the same ways that your campus pastor would address you, just with more monsters. But this means that we have to read Revelation looking for the pastoral application for our lives. John expected them to understand what he was trying to tell them. It was not nonsense to them. He expected them to understand. And that's good news for us because it means understanding is accessible to us as well. And the second thing I would say is that John is a poet. The word poet actually comes from a Greek word that just means to make. And John is making something here. His language is full of imagination. He's making images. He's evoking emotion in us if we read and hear this well. 
The book of Revelation is written as a full sensory experience. He didn't just want to convey information or engage your intellect. As you read, you'll encounter sights and sounds and tastes and smells and so much more. It's not a flat, boring text. It's meant to fuel our imaginations because whatever fuels our imaginations fuels our hope. And if we miss this point, then the way we read Revelation will be skewed. So imagine a literal interpretation of Revelation 1.16, where John is describing Jesus. He says, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was, was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So something like this. But see, John's point wasn't that Jesus was really big and has a crazy-looking face. The point is that he wanted them to see Jesus more clearly. At that time, in, the, in Roman culture, it wasn't so much a, a biblical reference, they had this idea of the seven stars. Because of all the stars in the sky who moved slowly in their constellations, there were seven that just did their own thing. The sun, the moon, Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn. These were the things they could see in the sky they didn't know exactly why they moved the way they moved. They just knew they didn't obey the rules. They did their own thing. And John's message is that Jesus holds all of those in one hand. All of those were things that the pagans gave called gods. Jesus holds them in one hand. He is in control of the cosmos. The double-edged sword com coming out of his mouth tells us that his words are piercing. It harkens back to Hebrews 4.12 that tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. That Jesus' face is brilliant. His glory is beyond anything we've experienced. And this is a much different and more engaging way to say these things, right? It's better than John just writing, he's so powerful, his words are true, he's glorious. Poetry fuels the imagination and can fuel our hope. And then thirdly, John is a theologian, a theologian. In his book, Reversed Thunder, Eugene Peterson describes John as a man whose entire mind is saturated with thoughts of God and whose being is staggered by visions of God. John has this massive knowledge of the Old Testament, and he expects us as his readers to have a massive knowledge of the Old Testament as well. There are over 250 allusions to Old Testament passages in this book. Think about that. His favorite books to allude to are the Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Exodus, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. How many of you know all those real well? I, I don't. But you know, th this is why we miss some of what he's doing here. These aren't even direct quotes. They're just illusions. He knew the word of God so well that he, with the help of the Spirit, was able to weave all of this throughout his entire text. And he often mixes multiple illusions together, putting two or more old things together to make something new. This is a masterful mind at work. 
But what it means is that if we want to understand this, we have to be scholars of the whole Bible in order to understand it well. Just like with a novel, you know, some of us did this in, in uh, high school maybe. We skipped all the other chapters and go read the end of the book, maybe to make sure it was similar to the end of the movie we watched instead of reading the book. You know, skip the chapters, read the ending, and think you understand it. You get a little bit. It's not that there's nothing there, but you miss out on too much. And there's way too much that you won't be able to understand without the backstory. And Revelation works the same. But more than that, it's in understanding the whole Bible that you will be able to discern when this book of Revelation is being misused to say things that simply don't square with the rest of God's teachings. And the illusions themselves, the fact that John is constantly using the other scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, they tell us that any attempt to read this book without weaving it together with the rest of scripture are misguided at best. This book is deeply connected to the rest of the Bible. And then the who also includes the seven churches in the province of Asia that John is writing to. And these are specific churches in specific cities. And they stand out as individuals because of the different problems that they're facing. And Jesus addresses each of them through John. He knows their trials and sufferings. And we can learn from them because we still struggle with the same temptations and trials today. The next question is where? John received this revelation while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. So I gave you this so you can see Patmos is right here. I don't know which one of those tiny isles it is, but this is Greece. So it's kind of over there on the uh, east side of Greece, this tiny little island. It's pretty. Um, we don't know why he's there exactly um, because the language isn't clear. He may have been there um, because of his witness for Christ in the sense that he was, that he was exiled by the governor uh, you know, or the, the Caesar or something. He may have been there in order to receive this revelation sent there. Um, he does say that he was on Patmos when he received it which could imply that he's no longer there when he's writing it down. So some of the, the tradition of just sort of seeing John in a cave on this island writing this thing, that may not be accurate based on if you read you know, carefully. And then when and why, there's not really an exact date that we know for this. Uh, many have pointed to somewhere around 95 AD we see in the letter that the church is obviously facing persecution and there's a sense that worse is going to come. When we look at the timing um, under Emperor Nero, uh, Nero Caesar in the AD 60s, there was some persecution of Christians. That seems pretty uh, clear. Uh, people, you know, there's, there's a lot of accounts of uh, you know, the things like where he would you know, kill them and dip them in tar and then use them as torches and for his dinner parties and, you know, some of the really gross things. But there's no evidence under Nero that this was like an empire-wide 
persecution. The same thing, uh, let's see, I think I have a Nero picture, maybe. Nope, nope, here he is, this is Nero, handsome man. And then uh, a few years later, 81 to 96, we have uh, Domitian. And if you were wondering what he looked like without clothes and missing like an arm and a penis, that's him right there. So um, thankfully the artist, you know, anticipated our, that we were asking that question. Um, so, but uh, Domitian may have persecuted Christians as well. And that's kind of been the longstanding story. Uh, Eusebius, one of the, the historians a couple hundred years later, talked about that. But there's not, the evidence is sparse that, that there was any sort of like systematic uh, empire-wide persecution at either of these times. The reality is that the persecution was probably local and would flare up from time to time. And John is writing to a specific region uh, that's close to the island of Patmos. And, and there may have been this kind of flare up of things. This was a dangerous time to be there. But as we read through uh, the gospels, as we read through Acts, what we find is that in the lives of Jesus and Paul, the Roman government could never be trusted to protect the weak and powerless, right? They were not really interested in justice. They were interested in power. The Roman government protected the rich and powerful, not their victims. In fact, in the Roman courts, a poor person couldn't even sue a, a rich person. All the rights went to the people who already had the money and the power. So as these things flared up from time to time, they could not count on the empire to save them. In fact, it was much the opposite. I get the image. It's kind of like in, in the American South. We have all these rules against murder on the books, but lynchings would be a public affair. And the, the news would come out and take pictures and the police would be there. And, you know, it was this kind of terrible awful, wicked thing, but the government just at best turns a blind eye and at worst kind of supports it. And then, you know, if we parade those people in, even though we literally have photographs of them doing the deed, they're found innocent of the crime. You know, this is what the Christians were facing in their time. And John is writing to God's people who are facing real persecution but he's writing a message of hope to hold strong through the end, to overcome whatever Satan in the world throws at them because Jesus wins. It's also a warning to those who are not following God that God will bring both salvation and judgment. And for us, I think it's important as we read for us to ask ourselves, who do we look like in this story? Because we always tend to read ourselves into the heroes of any story that we read. You know, I don't ever read the Gospels and think, like, how much like Judas am I? And our challenge is that modern America looks a lot more like Rome in Revelation than like the Christians in Revelation. And so we need to think about what do we do with that? In trying to relate to the book, I think sometimes we imagine persecution for ourselves. And we have often confused loss of privilege with persecution, but they are not the same thing. 
losing our unfair privileges that we used to have is not the same thing as being persecuted. <laughs> losing, no, I don't remember what I said. I'll try to say. Yes, losing the unfair privileges that we once had is not the same thing as persecution. And our, our Christians are going through this in our country. This is we see ourselves losing uh, political power and we think that's persecution. But it minimizes the persecution that these people were actually going through. Revolution, Revelation is describing people who are having their homes and livelihoods destroyed, who are being arrested, beaten, killed, who are seeing those things happening to their children, their parents, their brothers and sisters, their good friends, their spouses. So don't try to relate to this book so much that you miss the point. The organization, Mandy will go over this more deeply later. This is just a simple, a simplified one. Um, but what I want to do is give you some key threads pretty quickly that run through the book. Some major themes to look for as you read Revelation. If you miss these, you'll miss the points. So just keep an eye out. The first is there are seven blessings or beatitudes. So think about the beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. There's seven of those. Seven's a good, round, godly revelation number. I think John did it on purpose uh, as we go through this. It tells us that this is a book of hope, and these are promises from God. And so there are things like, blessed is the one who reads and takes to heart what's written in this book. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed is the one who stays awake because Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. Blessed are those who invited, uh, who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are the holy who share in the first resurrection. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and go through the gates into the city. So all these blessings pop up throughout the book. The next is that uh, this theme of listening. Whoever has ears to hear, let him listen. And here, no, I keep not doing it. I don't know how to do this. All right. Um, listening is a spiritual act, not just an acoustical act. This is a warning. It's not just an attention getter. We have to be careful that listening to the word results in obedience because that's what the heart that's the heart of what John is getting at here. Not just hearing what's preached. There's a pastoral message in this book. And if we miss that, we waste our time reading it. Part of what we're doing here today is trying to help you open your ears so that you can hear more clearly. This phrase is one that Jesus uses, remember our illusions, first in his parable in Matthew 13. Whoever has ears, let them hear. He talked about this with his parables. And in that parable where Matthew quotes Jesus saying the same thing, Jesus is talking about different types of soil. It wasn't only about the seed that was received. It was about what kind of soil received it. Are your ears awake and receptive to his word? The next theme that's really prevalent in Revelation is this theme of overcoming. Throughout John's messages to the seven individual churches, 
This is a re repeated theme. To him who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, to the one who's victorious, I will give this. And it's this Greek word, nikeo. I think I gave you that. Um, he uses it 15 times throughout the book. It gets translated different ways in different places, so you might miss that he's using the same word. But it, overcoming, conquering, being victorious. So John is exhorting the believers to overcome the trials, tribulations, and sufferings that they were facing in order to receive the promises that Jesus gave them. And so there's all these calls to overcome specific challenges, like in the, the seven church letters in, two, in chapter 2 and 3. In 12, he says, and they overcome, overcame because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their life even when faced with death. And then in the vision of the new creation at the end of chapter, uh, or at the end in chapter 21, he just, you know, describes this beautiful scene. And he says, those who are victorious or those who overcome will inherit all of this. And then the final theme is that Jesus wins. We've got to hold that in our minds. There's no confusion or poetic language here. Jesus' enemies will rise against him, but Jesus will be the one who conquers. Revelation shows the entire world slowly being divided into two distinct groups. In the end, no one is on the sidelines just watching. Everyone has joined one of two armies. Whose side are you going to be on? Are you going to be an enemy or an overcomer? This is the point of that alpha and omega language that gets used repeatedly. God started everything as the alpha. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. He started everything going, and he will bring everything to its proper conclusion as the omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. See, Revelation in ministering to these people tells us that it has to do with the ultimate questions of human destiny. In chapter 119, Jesus tells John, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will come later. The point of the book is this omega point, the point at which everything that God has been doing comes to a head. And so it's about the end, but what we discover in Revelation is that the end is actually a new beginning. So this is the appropriate conclusion for the Bible. It ties up all of the loose ends of the Old and New Testaments. The scripture starts with the creation of the garden and the corruption of sin, and it ends with Jesus writing all that is wrong and warped, bringing restoration to all of creation, salvation and new life to his people, and proper judgment for his enemies. But it's not just a return to the beginning. It's a movement from a garden to a garden city. Culture moves forward. Many more people are involved. But fellowship with God is completely restored. It's a new and better Eden, a new beginning. So the book gives us new eyes to look at the world. Chapter 1, verse 10, right at the very beginning, John says, On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard, and I saw. See, Revelation is about what the world looks like to a man or woman who is in the Spirit. We see the world differently. 
empires become disgusting monsters. And pitiful victims become victors. Ultimately, we should study this book because it has proven to have profound, continued power for clarifying and revitalizing Christian communion, communities and Christian individuals for 2,000 years, especially in times of despair and suffering and great change. When everything has been most unstable, this book has proven over and over to be a source of stability and courage for God's people. It has the power to help the one who reads it be, as it explicitly says, blessed. Okay, so I'm going to let you stand and wiggle for like 30 seconds while Peter comes and takes his place. We will move on. You in the back can hear a little better now. Hello, I'm Peter. Uh, I'm one of your campus pastors here at UTD, and I'm going to talk to you about the genre of Revelation. Right, And I think this is a very important uh, piece of reading Revelation because this is the lens in which we interpret everything we read. If you don't have the right lens, then you won't read it well. Right? If you have a purple lens, the whole world looks purple. If you have a, uh, the world is ending and doom and gloom, you will read all of Revelation that way, right? And so we need to make sure we know what the genre of Revelation is before we proceed further. So when I was growing up, Left Behind was huge, all right? So I know for some of you, you guys re read it, recognize it, watched it, um, and so for some of you, it was before your time, um, and you've never read or seen it, don't really know what it was about, but Regardless, the impact it has had on our general culture's ideas and reading of Scripture is still felt, right? It has changed how we think about Revelation because it was, you know, multi-million dollar, you know, franchise. Um, and its premise was based on reading the Bible literally, all right? Its premise was based on reading the Bible literally, right? The author said we have to take the Bible at its word, which on the surface, I'm like, yes, makes sense. But when you, drill, when you drill down to it, what does it mean to read the Bible literally? All right, what does it mean to read the Bible literally? So let's take Revelation 6, 12 through 14. All right, it says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Pretty clear, right? There's going to be an earthquake. The sun will be covered up, maybe an eclipse. The moon will be red. I've seen that before. And the stars in the sky will fall to the earth. Except what are stars? They are balls of gas stuck in that little black thing up there, right? And they can't fall to earth. So if we're reading it literally, do we think God is going to hurl balls of gas thousands of times bigger than the earth from billions of miles away toward us? Okay, so maybe John doesn't mean stars. Maybe he means asteroids. But are we reading the Bible literally then? Or let's take 
Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to, be, to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. All right, let's read this one literally, huh? Dragons, women, babies, stars. Very specific. And we have our balls of gasp coming out of the sky again, right? Um, and then we've got staying in the wilderness for four years, but approximately four years. It all makes perfect sense to us if we read this literally, right? But obviously this is metaphorical, right? There are no dragons. But if we take this metaphorical, why do we take the first one literally? Is it because we've just experienced more earthquakes than dragons? So even to the left behind writers who said we need to take the Bible at its word, they interpreted this passage figuratively. These are metaphors and symbols, not actual asteroids or disappearing landmarks or dragons trying to eat babies. Um, I'm not trying to cast aspersions to these authors. I'm not trying to guess their intent. I'm simply commenting on the effects of their writing, which I think uh, has misinterpreted this book. So how are we to make sense of this book? How are we to figure out the genre, and how does that influence our reading of it? Right? Genre is all about context clues. What genre we're reading is the lens in which we interpret the information we, we're reading. Usually, we figure out our genre unconsciously. You don't think about what genre something is when you read it. For anything from an article to a novel to the back of a cereal box. I'm not reading the back of my Lucky Charms box and then going on goodreads.com and leaving a review saying, the plot was shallow, there was no character development, didn't follow it. I know what it's meant to communicate and what it's not meant to communicate based on the genre that I'm reading, uh, that I know it to be. So, I'm gonna have y'all do an activity. All right, you have this passage one. So get in groups of three to five. All right, and then we're going to have one reader. Oh. One reader. You're going to read this passage as if you were a high school biology teacher reading from a science textbook. And listeners, you're going you're gonna to answer what does this animal look like based only on what you have read from this textbook. All right, go. All right, all right, we're going to come on back, going to come on back. So, what does this animal look like based on this? Give us some answers. Over here. A giant diesel punk behemoth. A giant red-headed hydra. Thor. Anyone else? A phoenix. All right, yes. So, good answers, good answers. 
We're going to go straight into passage two. All right. No answers quite yet. All right. Passage two. Now pick a new reader and pretend you're a zookeeper giving a tour and you're trying to convey information about the habits and habitat of this animal. And now listeners, you're going to talk about what you've learned about this animal based only on this tour you have just received. Go. All right, come on back, come on back. Give me some more answers. What did you learn about the habits and habitat of this animal? They aren't afraid of vampires. They are lazy. They act like dogs. Anyone else, anyone else? They, they laugh? Is that what you said? Yes, they laugh. All right, cool. Last one, passage three. Pick a new reader. And this final time, Read it as if you were a, kinder, uh, a kindergarten teacher trying to entertain kindergartners at story time and answer, were you entertained? All right, I'm going to cut you off right there because I know none of you were entertained by that as kindergartners. <laughs> Unless you had a really, really good teacher reader. <laughs> all right, all right. So, so that was our genre activity. And so as, you know, people who are in college, you, you probably couldn't help but already know what genre these things are supposed to be. But if we're trying to say that first passage is a textbook, it's a very bad textbook, right? It, it, I mean, basically, we come out of it thinking, one, Tiger is misspelled. And two, that they are like on fire and maybe gods of some sort, you know. Or yeah, so or some new animal that I've yet to see, right? And the second one, if it's a zookeeper um, trying, to, trying to tell you about these tigers, you might think they're like dogs. You might think they're pretty safe. That You might be like, oh, they like back rubs, huh? Let me give that tiger a back rub. Um, that last one is it's just straight from Wikipedia, like, and we're not reading Wikipedia to children, right? If we don't get the genre right, then we're gonna say this is a really bad passage. This is a really bad thing. This is, and then, or if we don't recognize that the, uh, or if we don't recognize that, we might get the wrong information out of it, right? We might just get a totally different idea of what a tiger is actually like. Um, so, it's hard using genres for things that they aren't designed for. You can't actually be true to the text, right? You can't actually read the Bible, take the Bible at its word, because you're not actually reading it. So, before I said that people would interpret Revelation literally because they wanted to take the Bible at its word. But by literally, I think we should mean based on its liter literal, uh, literature genre, right? If we don't get that, then we're not reading it literally. We're reading it bad. <laughs> so, are we really taking the Bible at its word when we're reading it literally? Doesn't seem like it. Seems like we missed the whole point. So, if we recognize that genre is important, what genre is revelation? We're going to go to my good friends. Thank you, Bible Project, for that video. So, Revelation is one of these apocalyptic literature books, but that's only one of its genres. Oh, wait, I got to get back to the PowerPoint. Um, so 
Revelation is actually a combination of three. This is only one of its genres. This combination of three, uh, three genres. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That's that one of those blanks. Two blanks down. It's, a, it's revelation is prophetic or a prophecy. And then revelation is a letter. Right? And right there, apocalypse is just uh, seeing the world as God sees it. So it's a mix of these three uh, genres. And this is kind of my uh, poor man's Venn diagram to try to show you how these genres kind of intersect and where certain books of the Bible might rest, right? Um, so for our purposes, right, apocalyptic literature, it's, it's, a, it's a revelation from God, right? And so all apocalypses are prophecies because prophecy you might think it's just about future or fortune telling but that's not biblically what it usually meant biblically prophecy is simply a message from god so one could say that all of the bible is prophetic not just those things concerning with the future so apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic is all contained within prophecy right because if you get a revelation from god it's a message from god right um, but apocalyptic literature is seeing the world as God sees it. It's not just a message. It's usually visions. Visions so that you might see the world as he sees it. Um, so apocalypses are unveiling or disclosure. They're highly poetic. They deal with the present age and the age yet to come. So it's not just about the future. It's also about the present. Um, and Eugene Peterson describes ap apocalyptic literature as being comfort, comfort to the afflicted, and afflicting to the comforted. Comfort to the afflicted and afflicting to the comforted. So depending on which group you land in, that might be why you feel that way about Revelation. So Revelation has both of those in it. It brings hope to people in trials and a kick in the butt to people who've gotten too comfortable in their faith. Right? And with prophecy, I think the reason why we think it's all about the future is because we've read too many fantasy books. But messages from God can be about teaching, correction, encouragement. If you actually read the prophets, a lot of it isn't dealing with the future. It's about saying what's happening now and what do we need to change now. Um, Old Testament's foretold truth while alluding back to the covenant, right, God's covenant. In light of this truth, live this way. Or because this is coming, live this way now. But they're also pastoral, right? They addressed real situations, real life situations in the here and now. I love what Brandon was saying, like, Revelation can't be nonsense to who John is writing it to. It can't only make sense to 21st century Americans. He's being pastoral, giving practical life applications, not just employing scare tactics or giving cryptic messages for only really smart Americans right now to, to decode about the end. So some may separate these two because there, there is a lot of overlap between prophecy, prophecy or prophetic and, and apocalyptic literature. So some might be separating these two by defining prophecy as about 
preaching repentance and righteousness needed right now to escape judgment, whereas apocalyptic writers were more about patience and trust for the deliverance and reward that's sure to come. Right? Something's more immediate and something's more way in the future um, dealing with that. So, but it is squishy in the same way that sci-fi and fantasy is squishy. I remember being in, in second grade and I had to write a, a book report on a science fiction book. And I'm like, I don't really know what science fiction is, but I'll go to the library and they'll help me out. And so all the, all the, little, all the little books in elementary school library have like certain symbols, right? This genre, this genre, genre. And for sci-fi and fantasy, it was a unicorn. And so it wasn't helpful. And so I picked a book called The Last of the Really Great Wang Doodles. I got an A, and my feedback was, this isn't technically science fiction, but I'll accept it. So how do we get better at dis discerning genre? You just got to read books of those different genres. You got, to, you got to read your Bible. You got to get to know those apocalyptic literature books. You got to get to know those prophecy books. And eventually you start seeing, oh, when I see phrases like this, or visions like this, or images like this, I'm reading apocalypse. I'm reading apocalyptic literature. And then the third genre is a letter, all right? It opens and closes with typical letter form, right? To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. And the last words are, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people, amen. All right, that's a letter. So how do we know it's these three genres, though? How do I know it's a letter, other than what I've told you? How do I know it's a prophecy? How do I know it's apocalyptic? All right, here, it literally tells you. It's a prophecy, right? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, this message from God, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Right here, why it's a letter to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And then lastly, we have these quotes. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. If you know your Bible, or you're on Bible Gateway, or you're on YouVersion Bible app, It'll have these little, these little, you know, B, A, B, C, D, and you can click it and see verse references. All right, that'll help you out. And what it says is, look, he's coming with the clouds, is from Daniel, right? We, we just saw it in the Bible Project video. Daniel is apocalyptic literature starting from chapter 7 and on. So he's quoting from this apocalyptic book, and then every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. It's from Zechariah, another apocalyptic book. If he's, if in the opener, he's quoting apocalyptic literature, it might tune you in that maybe, just maybe, Revelation is also apocalyptic. All right? So, now we know it's an apocalyptic prophetic letter, but as a letter, it's a revelation addressed to certain people, right? It's from a pastor. It is pastoral and relational, not just something random for anyone to pick up at the bookstore to read and figure out what the message is, right? We have to understand 
who it's from and who it's to, to really discern its message. It definitely does have something for us to understand in our situation and context, but we can't turn that out of nowhere. We have to understand what it meant to them first before we can begin to apply it to what we're experiencing today. And how we end up getting confused and mixing up those messages is when we don't realize the illusions John is making. Right? Brandon was talking about this a little bit. An illusion, oh, I don't think I have this one. Uh, an illusion is an implied or indirect reference, especially in literature. That's your blank. An illusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. Not illusion, illusion, illusion. <laughs> he is referring. So it's a, an implied or indirect reference, especially in literature. So he is referring to other things without telling you explicitly that he is. He assumes that you'll get the reference, the illusion. So let's do an activity. We're going into Daniel. All right. So some of Daniel, if you know, if you've read Daniel, some of Daniel is history. The first six chapters are history. It's where we get Rack Shack and Benny and the cho big chocolate bunny. Um, if you don't get that, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refuse to bow down to the idol. Um, but we also get Daniel in the lion's den. And then in chapter 7, we have a flip. It's apocalyptic suddenly. And sometimes that trips us up because we're not used to that very often. But if, you, if you've ever read Les Mis, who here has read Les Mis? Yeah, I'm sorry. Who here has read the unabridged version? Or you're not sure. In Les Mis... A quarter of Les Mis has nothing to do with Les Mis. A quarter of Les Mis is Victor Hugo's philosophical, moral ramblings about French architecture, sewage, history, the, the Battle of Waterloo. Like, it, it literally has nothing, which is why people cut it out and publish it without it. But that is an example of a book that switches genre on you, and if you're not ready for it, you're, you're halfway through the book, and you're like, whatever happened to Jean Valjean? I don't know. I don't remember who he is. Um, and so it does trip us up. And so you need to be aware of switches in genre. It does happen even to this day. And if you're not ready for it, it takes you by surprise, and you don't know what to do. So Daniel does this switch, right, in chapter 7. And so I've given you a passage. And it, that parallels with a passage of Revelation in your packet. And so what we're going to do to practice learning about illusions is you're going to read through them both, and you're going to circle any words or phrases that you see paralleled in the passages and draw a line between them. All right? And so if you see dragon in one, circle that. Dragon in the other, circle that. Draw a line between, it so you, between them so that you can see how much John is alluding to other apocalyptic literature. All right, so I'll give you a few minutes to go do that. All right, hopefully you've gotten some down. Now with, you know, partners, two groups of two or three, compare what you've what you've circled. See if there's any you missed. And yeah, help each other out with these illusions. All right, all right. Come on back. Come on back. So yeah, so these are just, I mean, these are just small chunks in the, in the books that they come from. And you can see how many parallels there are, are already. And so if you didn't know Daniel very well, you're probably not going to read Revelation very well. And right after this section in Daniel, he, the angel does explain to Daniel what those things are about. So if you miss that, then you kind of miss what 
John's going for in Revelation, right? And so I didn't give you that to, you know, kind of whet your appetite, and maybe you can go and open your Bible and read it. Um, so that is just something that you, you can do. You can very easily find resources like that on the Internet and see the, these allusions. Um, but especially as you read your Bible more, you'll, you'll remember, oh, this is from here. Or, you know, click that little link on Bible Gateway, and you'll start seeing, right? Just do this homework, see what, what parallels there are, and see what, so what does John mean when he's referring to this? What does this dragon mean when he's saying it, and what might it parallel with in this other book? So, I've given you a list of apocalyptic literature in the Bible if you want to read. I even made them uh, little check boxes, so if you want, you can read them and check them off if you're like a to-do list kind of person. So um, there aren't that many, uh, or it wouldn't take you that long to read all of these. So anyways, but so this genre, right? We've, we've gotten into it. We know what it is. We kind of know why it's important. But what is the purpose of apocalyptic literature? Why would God give us this kind of book instead of some other kind like a clear-cut prophecy or a history book or a storybook. Because to see the world as he sees it requires imagination. It's not just more teaching, it's visions. Visions that spark your imagination. An imagination that can have a hope more in line with his. Because maybe redemption isn't so easily spelled out in words, but it's impressed upon us through images and feelings. And as we live our lives in a mundane world, it's not enough just to say, look at the world through Jesus' eyes. No, the apocalypse is there to show you the world through Jesus' eyes. That's what we as pastors and as brothers and sisters in Christ are to do for one another, right? to remind each other of what reality actually is. Reality is not just what I can see in front of my face and what I can touch, right? There's something more going on. It's not a battle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers and principalities of this world, right? That's what, that's what our Bible says. My little sin may not look all that scary to me most days. Our American materialism may look harmless, my participation in that is just one drop in the bucket. But a grotesque beast coming out of the sea, being ridden by a giant whore, is that what God sees when he looks at those same things? Because if it is, then I want to see it like that too. We need to remind each other of the apocalypse, of the revelation of God, that in the midst of suffering, he's there but also that sin will meet judgment and that blessings come from a good God. Right? Every day we should be participating in revelation for ourselves and for others to see the world as God sees it. That is what apocalyptic literature is for. You know, a description of a tiger may be impressive, but when we read tiger, tiger, burning bright, it makes us feel something different. Right? It's scary. It's awesome. It wonders what kind of a great God could have made such a great and terrifying being. Well, what kind of a great God could be in control of such a chaotic and destructive world that John describes? A world of beasts and dragons, of calamity from the sky and from the ocean. What kind of God 
could judge such a world? And what kind of God could redeem it? You know, some words are used to communicate something, but some words are used to bring us into communion with someone. Revelation is here to bring us into communion with God so that after seeing the world as it is, with its brokenness, its evil, its yearning for hope, we too can come to the conclusion at the end of the book and join together in one voice saying, come Lord Jesus. Amen? All right. Y'all, take another wiggle break. Stand up. Get the shakes out. We're going to have Mandy come up and do a little bit of her talk before we go to lunch. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna eat pizza. Um, I don't know, hopefully around 6. So we'll see how, how far I can get through this. But, yeah, Peter just talked about, um, oh, wait, that's me. I'm Mandy. And I get to talk about Revelations structure and images um which by the way uh i feel like the time that i was given is completely insufficient and yet completely sufficient all at the same time so it's going to be um quite the task for me and also do when i want to change a slide that's you it's you it's not up it's down it's down okay yes me in your packet, go forward. They could have heard you as well, huh? Um, hopefully my notes make sense. Okay, so Peter just talked to us about apocalyptic literature, what it was, and helped us understand that. And now we're going to actually dive in some into the book. If you did not read Revelation before you came today, um... You know, you're going to just have to kind of write some of this down and then go see what I'm talking about, um, but it's going to be a little bit harder for you. So hopefully y'all read it before you came. Um, but yeah, we're going to look at the images and how the book is structured, and I pulled from several different places when preparing this. I'm not an expert on Revelation, but I um, I dove in and just kind of got lost in listening to like 20 hours of lectures on Revelation. And then I was like, oh, shoot, I didn't actually um, prep the part that I was supposed to, so I need to actually work on this. Um, but Revelation just has a way of, of sucking you in. It's just such, such a good, good book. So you should go read it if you haven't. Um, so I tried to prep from the lecture, these lectures from Gordon Fee. I have a commentary. Brandon and Peter mentioned Reverse Thunder by Eugene Peterson. Um, Brady Bobbink up in Bellingham, Washington did a whole class on Revelation I listened to. And so now I'm like, okay, where do I even start? Okay, so I actually ordered my notes wrong. So you're going to skip to something that starts like this. It's that there's like an outline there, and that's what... That's going to be the structure of the book. To me, it made more sense after I actually wrote this to start here. So did y'all find it? Page 18? Cool. Okay, so the structure. 
this is this structure that I'm giving you is just expanded from what Brandon talked about in the first um, the first part of the lecture. So um, you'll know you'll see a when I say one, that means Revelation chapter one. A means the first part of of the um, the chapter. So if I say one a, that's Revelation chapter one first part. Okay, so that's how the outline kind of reads. So 1A is the prologue. It's kind of an introduction to the whole um, book. And then we kind of have um, 1B, the second part of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3. You're going to see the letters to the churches. And these letters are kind of all about, things are going to get worse. There's a time of tribulation. And they can compromise or they can remain faithful. Each one of the letters to the seven churches is a little bit different. And I wish I had time to unpack all of that for you. But this is a 30-minute talk on the structure of Revelation. So that's outside the scope. But um, again, a good commentary would be awesome here. Okay, chapters 4 to 5 in Revelation are all in God's heavenly throne room. It's where we see John enter in and he, he sees like the flashes of lightning and the thunderous voice and he turns and looks and there's a lamb that was slain. You know, all of this is happening in heaven and it is one of the most incredible chapters in the Bible, and I wish I could preach a sermon on it. Um, maybe I will in a minute. You never know. Um, because, y'all, um, chapter 5 is really one of those chapters every time I read it. And you saw the image even in the Bible project of this lamb that was so powerful that he can overcome this dark world in our sin. We have a God that powerful. And he didn't win by violence. He won by dying. And that's a God I want to serve, but that's a different sermon. So here we go. Okay, next we see um, there are three cycles of seven. In Revelation, they there um, he talks about patterns a lot. <clears throat> Oh my gosh, I shouldn't have talked about that. You know, Layla told me, she's like, add your, your little touch. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be weeping up here. Um, but anyway, you'll see numbers. There are patterns of numbers. And there are three cycles of seven that we're going to see. So in chapters um, six, uh, 6 through 16, we see these three cycles of seven. And they kind of come out like these. Do y'all know what Russian nesting dolls are? You know, those little dolls that you keep opening and they just get smaller and smaller and smaller. That's kind of how, how this works. Um, so there's three different ones of them and each contains seven things. So the first one that we see in chapter 6 through chapter 8, verse 5, are the seven seals. If you'll remember in chapter um, 5 of Revelation, John enters the heavenly, he's in the heavenly throne room, and he's like, who is worthy to open the scroll? And you see 
that the scroll is sealed with these seven seals. And so there's seven of them. So seals one through four are these um, four horsemen, and they represent war, conquest, famine, and death, which, a.k.a., I love this, was just a typical day on earth. Like every day there's war and conquest and famine and death and all of these things. Um, so we, we, see, we see those in the four horsemen. The fifth seal are martyred Christians. We've already seen in Revelation a martyr. Someone has died because of their faith. Um, and then the sixth seal is God's response to that, which is an earthquake. And then you have this short little interlude where there's, it talks about the 144,000 sealed and then the great multitude coming. And then um, D is where we really see um, where I'm talking about these Russian nesting dolls. So the seventh seal contains the next set of seven, which are the seven trumpets. Does that make sense? So the seven trumpets. So I'm not going to be good at like remembering to change these. Um, so the seventh seal opens. And so we have this expectation like all seven seals are open. We can open the scroll now. No, he does not go there yet. He takes us back to the very beginning with these seven trumpets. Okay, so the seven trumpets, chapter 8, 6 through eleven nineteen. He backs up and tells us this whole story again, this time using trumpets instead of seals. He uses imagery that's straight out of Exodus for us. He, um, if y'all remember um, the plagues in Egypt when, you know, Moses goes and he's like, I'm just going to look at you because it's easier than this is scary, but you're not so scary, Jalen. Um, but, you know, he goes to the Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And he doesn't. His heart, Pharaoh's heart gets hardened and the plagues get worse and worse and worse every time. That's what happens here. These trumpets, trumpets one through five, replay the plagues. So we see, um, oh, I also, oh, yes, I wrote it here. Okay, so we see that the earth is going to be scorched, a third of the earth, which um, above when I was talking about the riders, the four horsemen, the four riders were given permission to destroy a quarter of the earth. And so now we see a third destruction. So the destruction's getting worse in the trumpet. So now it's a, a third instead of a fourth. So God's judgment is ramping up just like it did in Egypt. And then later on, we're gonna when we get to the third set of seven, we're gonna see the seven bowls, and the judgment gets even worse in that one. So when we get there, we see the plagues affect everyone, not just a fourth and then a third, and now it will be everyone except those who follow the lamb. Okay, so earth, we have, a, we have the sea, we have the water being bitter, the sun's darkened, the locust plague, we have the cavalry, the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen again, from the seals and the nation did the nations did not repent on God's judgment is on them again. And then we see 
this other interlude where he talks, where it's a weird part in the book. I mean, like the whole book is a little strange, but, um, but John starts eating the scroll and then we get this um, other interlude of these two witnesses. And then we get this consummation. The nations are shaken and the, the church is supposed to bear witness and will inherit this new creation. So we have that coming in. God's kingdom is coming. Love 30 minutes for all this, but it's, you know, it's a flyover, y'all. Okay, so chapters 12 through 14, they stop these three sets of seven. So we've done two of their three sets of seven, and now we're stopping for a minute. And um, John kind of goes into these signs and symbols, and we see this cosmic battle that's behind the persecution that is happening to the, to the seven churches. We finally get to see who the real enemies are. So like we've been talking about, it's this moment where the curtain is opened and we see what's really going on. So that is chapters, yeah, 12 through 14. Okay, and then chapters 15 through 16, verse 21, we get the third, finally get to the third set of seven. So again, this is a lot of um, language out of the Exodus. I'm trying to look at my slides and my papers. I need like, you know, like four stands up here. Um, okay, so we're up to the third set of seven. So we see um, the set, we see the painful sores, the seed of blood. We get rivers to blood, a scorching sun total darkness, frog-like demons, another little interlude. So these patterns are exactly the same in all three of these. And then we get this earthquake that comes in and levels. He calls it Babylon, but Babylon is a reference back to Daniel. Babylon was the, the great enemy nation in Daniel. And so Bab when we see Babylon... He's really talking about Rome in his time, but it, Babylon would mean something to them. Okay, so we get this earthquake that levels Babylon, and then um, in chapter 17 through 19a, we get the fall of Babylon, 19b through 20, the final battle. This final thing is getting wrapped up, and then in verse 21, in chapter 21 through 22, we get the new Jerusalem. Finally, the marriage between heaven and earth. God is making all things new. And like Brandon said, we see the theme that Jesus wins. And that happens at the end of this. So, so it really is um you it really is a structure that makes sense once you see kind of what's happening. But when you kind of look at it, you're like, what are bowls and trumpets and horsemen and you know all of that but these really are patterns that you're going to see throughout so real quick this is not some crazy code to be cracked just like peter was talking about this is a symbolic vision of the church things are going to be hard we will suffer but we must remain faithful to the lamb 
The last beatitude in the book, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. So that is that. Okay, I am not gonna beat a dead horse too much, but um, when I'm gonna repeat, or is dinner ready or anything? It is. Yay. Yeah, it's great, great segue. I think y'all, are y'all hungry? Do you want, you want me to keep going or do you want to eat? Okay, so before the break, we were in Revelation. I went through an outline of the of Revelation. That's what we did before dinner. It was this, you know, crescendo to the final battle, and there we were. Peter talked about um, images, and that's where we're going to be on page 15 in a second. I'm going to talk about some different images in Revelation. Um, I kind of had this thought, like, when um, when I was thinking about images that mean something to us, if I described a tall, lanky man with a top hat and red and white stripes or star, you know, stars on his hat in a in a coat, does an image come to your mind? Yeah, like Uncle Sam, you know. Or if I, you know, said. Um, you know, talked about an elephant and a donkey. Um, you know, often like when we put those two things together, we think of a political figure to represent our political parties. So I kind of was even thinking like, what could it mean 2000 years from now that California was blue and Texas was red? Like what would, what images would come to our mind? We might be like, what was Texas like literally red? Was it a red terrain? Were the people what were the people like there? I don't know. So images really do um, they can be um, you know misinterpreted pretty easily um, depending on our culture and our context. So that's kind of some of what you know Peter really reminded us about. So um, hopefully y'all found we're on page going to start on page fifteen and we'll go from there. So again, Revelation is a book that was meant to be read aloud. Most pe people in that time period were illiterate. So when letters were sent to the churches, they were read aloud to them. People didn't take their scroll and sit silently in their homes and in their chair and read them. So, um, so yeah. And there is a beatitude at the very beginning of this book that says, Blessed are those who read this prophecy aloud and hear the words of this prophecy and take it to heart because the time is near. So, again, it's just a book that's to be read aloud because the, the aloud sort of really does open up our imagination in a way that me sitting silently and reading something I've read over and over and over um, just doesn't do. Like Peter said, it should engage our imagination. We're entering a strange, bizarre world when we enter Revelation. We don't really just have a narrative with lots of plain facts to look at. We see some weird creatures when we read. We have seven heads and lightning, creatures covered in eyes with wings, sounds of thunder, flashes of lightning, and... I think that because of where we come from often, I was a STEM major, 
um, at first, and then I went to economics. Still, economics people are, we're, we're numbers people as well. And so entering a world that is not to be taken literally, it's just, it's just not how I naturally think and experience things. And so this, is, this kind of literature is really difficult um, and it's difficult to let it really engage my imagination sometime, but we really do need to let it do that. And we've talked about that pretty extensively, so I'm going to skip on in my notes. I told Brandon, he's like, how far are you? And I'm like, um, I told him halfway. And then I look down and I'm on page three of 17. I was not halfway. And so y'all are like, oh my gosh, this woman's going to be talking for two hours. No, he gave me 30 minutes and I'm going to, I'm going to get through it. Okay. So, um, as we, we're going to talk, so images, when we kind of start looking in the, um, the book, there are some images in this book that John tells us exactly what they are. There's other images that we're going to see that are directly taken, you know, like from the Old Testament. When he writes things, it's supposed to spark some kind of memory and emotion and all of that from us. And then there's some of these images that we're just not going to know what they were because we don't live in that time or culture. So I kind of was thinking about this um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to structure this where I give them the images that he directly talks about in this book and that are defined by John. And so here they are. Here are the fill in the blanks. So again, chapter one of Revelation 17 through 18, it says, um, <clears throat> okay, so the, there is this person described that says the one like a son of man. Well, that is Christ. That's what goes in your blank. Who alone was dead and is alive forever and ever. So we're told in the book that the one like a son of man is Christ. The next one, 120, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches to whom God is writing. He defines that for us late in chapter one. The seven stars are the seven angels or messengers. You, the translation could be either one of the seven churches. Set, uh, chapter 7, verse 14. The numberless multitude are those who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb, which equals the redeemed people of God worldwide. By the way, I did directly get these out of a commentary um, by Gordon Fee. Um, he was, he, I, I love him. If y'all ever have a chance to listen to one of his lectures, he actually died two weeks ago. Um, but he is like this really, I mean, when you're listening to his lectures, he is such a words, word person. Like he's so precise because he was on the NIV translation committee. And so you just hear him talk about all of these words and how they're, they're chosen and used. But then the next moment, he's like preaching a sermon as he's teaching, and he's weeping, and he sings songs and all kinds of things. So it's really fun to listen to him. Okay, chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon is Satan. Chapter 17, verse 9, the seven heads of the beast 
um, are the seven hills on which the woman sits, which is a clear allusion to Rome, famous for its sitting on seven hills, but it also becomes a fluid image and thus equals the seven kings. Chapter 17, verse 18, the great harlot is the great city on seven hills and therefore Rome. So you can go back through and you can see how those are defined, but I went ahead and wanted to write them out for you because it'll help you as you read to kind of know what these different images are. Okay. And then coming to the next part, there is the next ones I'm going to talk about aren't explicitly told to us by John. Again, John was very familiar with Greek and Hebrew, the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament. And um, like Brandon said, he was probably the John who, um, he was probably the John who lived and walked with Jesus. We don't really know that for sure, but there are a lot of reasons to believe that it's possible. So in that case, he probably lived and breathed this of his life. Um, okay, so these, these images that seem so weird and bizarre, kind of like Peter was saying, um, they, they're, they're just, he just uses them all the time. And I was like trying to think of like examples like for us, like what would something like that be like what do we immerse ourselves in so much that we could just say a phrase and we would know it would bring to mind a whole scene so what I thought about is um and I'm older than you I don't know if you noticed but um so I was like man what do the, what do I hear students talk about one was the office how many of y'all watch the office okay so, if I say to you, office watchers, Scott's Tots, it, it brings to mind this very cringy episode of The Office. Like, you, you look, and I was Googling about it, and, I mean, there are, it's got its own Reddit thread with, like, is that what you call a Reddit, a Reddit something, a thread? Is it a thread? I'm not cool. I don't even know what Reddit really is. But I hear it's big. But there are like thousands of people who cannot watch that episode. It is so cringy. But, um, you know, so that would be an example maybe. Or um, if I say it's corn to you, you know, many of you watch YouTube way too much and you think of a cute little boy, you know, it being interviewed and then they make a song about it that's played virally on every thing so um so yeah there's scott's tots it's corn and then layla get ready layla you're on the screen so layla gave me an idea so layla if i say shark bait ooh ha ha you know layla layla knew i did not know that was from finding nemo and had never heard that but you know, like these, these phrases bring something to mind. Well, so I could go on a whole other tangent right now and say, okay, the fact that you people know the office that well or YouTube or movies and you don't know your Old Testament, what does that say about you? Oh, no. 
we really do need to spend more time in our scriptures and less time watching YouTube. Okay, but that's not here nor there, I guess, right now. It is here. It is here right now. Okay, so... So yeah, as we as we look into this book, I'm going to try to talk about um, about some of these different images for us. Um, sorry, I'm like trying to fly through my notes. Let me kind of get my bearings here. Um, okay, we could take like chapters four. I want to take a look at chapter four in the Revelation and. Um, you know, John is commissioned in chapter in the beginning of this book to write down everything he sees. So he goes into the throne room in chapter four and he, it says, um, let me, I think, did I write this down for you? I wrote chunks of this first. Hang on. Let me skip ahead. So he goes in and he writes down what he sees. And there's all of these different images that we see of how the throne is described. And um, you'll notice pretty quickly, first of all, that John does not try to describe God in this passage. God is referred to as the one seated on the throne. And um, I think that would be very important for a Jewish man not to try to describe what God actually looked like. So you see all of these um, images of things that are happening um, in the center of the throne, around the throne. You know, he uses, are those like adverbs? Like, what are they? Around. What's around, Jalen? A preposition, that is the word I was looking for. There's all these prepositions that he uses in that to describe like what's happened. I didn't know, Peter, and I didn't write it down. <laughs> He's just the one who's sitting front and center. Um, but thank you, lit people. So there's all of these things happening, happening around. So there's above him, you know, around him, all of that. So I put in your notes for you, um, and I'm not going to take the time to do this, um, but it picks up imagery again from Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, in this in this passage in chapter four, and um, Paul was really sweet, and he wrote he typed it side by side for you again. So again, you can see how clear. Clearly, he is pulling directly from the Old Testament again in this chapter. I mean, just almost, he's describing these living creatures that look like the seraphim and cher cherubim. Seraphim, yes. Okay, so you'll see it side by side. And then, um, and then it says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So I think what's so important for us to know is he's pulling these images from the Old Testament, and you notice what John's reaction to seeing the one seated on the throne is right away. He has to fall face down. 
and this is another like little preachy moment for me is um, I think that's our only reaction when we encounter the living God is to fall face down before him. And especially as we get to see these different images and things happening in this book, um, you'll see it really is a book of worship. When you see all of the things that are happening and you see how mighty and powerful he is, there's only one thing to do, and that's fall on our face before him. Um, so um, the, the way that he describes God, it's in, your, it's in your notes better, but he, we see these precious stones. He has these mount of four rows of precious stones, and it describes what they are. And you see in the revelation that that's how the one it's described of the one sitting on the throne, like what he's wearing from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and pearls of and what peals of thunder in front of the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. And again, if we remember from the Bible project that we just watched when it says a sea of glass, it kind of reminds us again of calm. You know, it's like the sea is very out of control and chaotic and scary and fearful. And sea of glass means calm. So again, that should like also remind us of like Jesus calming the sea. You know, when he's on the boat and he like, just tells the calms the winds and the waves and they listen to him only god does that and we see that god's doing that again here so again lots of imagery and i think we can get so caught up in the way that things are described and we just miss miss why it's described the way that it is so without beating a dead horse more does that all make sense to you guys yeah Okay, dead horse. Are you awake? Those are my dogs. <laughs> okay, they, I love them. <laughs> Revelation 12. Okay, in, okay, before we read that, before we read Revelation 12, there are numbers and images in Revelation that have been misunderstood a ton and that's what I'm going to try to talk about now who is the woman the dragon the two beasts all of that and I put these together because in trap chapter 12 we actually start meeting a lot of the actual em enemies in Revelation and I also think that we get some strange ideas from these verses so I wanted to explain them more fully um, I'm not actually going to take the time to read it read the whole thing but this is when we see this woman introduced. Peter actually read this scripture um, in in his talk a few minutes ago when he was describing apocalypse to us. So we read it a, a little bit ago. But we see this woman. We meet the dragon here, and um, you know, and he's hurled to the earth. All of that happens, and so um, so I kind of wanted to start here as I start trying to describe these different images. I am gonna tell you, just like from the beginning, these, a lot of these images have been interpreted a lot of different ways. 
Um, so we're going to talk about the beast and 666 and the mark of the beast and Armageddon and all of these fun things now. And, um, you know, I will tell you that I think when we kind of take a, a step back and we kind of see this book as um, as it's uh, intended to be read, um, it's re- these things really, they're scary. They really are scary images. They are, and they're meant to be, but maybe not as scary in the ways that we often think that they're scary, because the thing that we need to remember is Jesus wins, right? Um, And so, yeah, I'm going to try to talk about some of these. I'm not a theologian. I just read some books and have some stuff that I want to tell you about it. Now, what? A theologian reads books. That is what they do. I am a theologian, Sarah, right? <laughs> my cheer, my my fan club. Okay, gotta go. The woman. <laughs> okay, first we'll talk about her. So in 12, chapter 12, 1 through 2, a great sign appeared in heaven. A, one cl- a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about, about to give birth. So we see a fertile woman here. She is about to give birth. Remember, it's imagination, not literal. But in verse 17, we get a a hint of of who she is and all of that. And so we see the dragon becomes enraged at her with, with the woman. And he goes off to wage war against the rest of her offspring who are those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So it seems like this is supposed to remind us of Mary fleeing from Herod to save Jesus as a baby, just as God snatched up the, snatched up the body of Jesus out of harm's way. Uh, Not like, I don't know what I wrote in my notes here. Hang on. Okay. Yeah. So God snatched up his people out of Egypt also and saved them. He also snatched up Jesus. Um, He allowed Jesus to die, but Jesus overcame. Um, So we can say, you know, that Satan has obviously tried to destroy Jesus. He sent him to the cross to die. God did something miraculous there. Jesus is resurrected. So we could say that this woman is the mother of all saints kind of figuratively, or we could say this woman is the Messiah and the rest of her offspring are God's new covenant people, the church, and that the dragon is waging war against them. Lovely. That was so hard to get through. Y'all, when you're taking lots of information, did that make sense? hope so. The dragon. The dragon also appears in heaven when John um, John sees him in heaven. He is the serpent. He is the, um, the representation of all evil in the world. He is the one who seeks to destroy. Okay, the next one, the beasts. Um, okay. So we see that the dragon has started waging war. So how does he wage war? He wages war through the beasts. 
The first beast is of the sea out of Daniel 7 that we looked at earlier with Peter. The beast is given power by the dragon. Again, he is Babylon, or more specifically to them, Rome. Babylon, again, was the empire in da uh, when Daniel wrote, and he wrote of its end. By the time John was writing, a new Babylon has come along, but it's basically the same old thing. And John is saying, saying that it will meet the same end as its predecessor. God's kingdom is the only one that will last. Both Daniel and John are making the same point. That's why John uses Daniel, Daniel's images, to remind them of the same point. When they know that Daniel, what, what was said to Daniel came to pass and already passed. So again, the dragon gives its power, throne, and authority to the beast. And by following the beast, people worship the dragon. So again, if, and I think the same thing is that the same thing sort of happens today, but we're just looking what happened then, who was John writing to, he was writing to them. So I'm not going to make like a big jump to how this applies to us today yet. We're just going to talk about how it applied to them. Okay. So the dragon gave the beast power. The dragon gave Rome a lot of power because the dragon has real power here in the world. And that's what happened when we saw the, we, we see this apocalypse. It's starting to show us a lot of what's happening. It's unveiling these things for us. The second beast, it says, speaks as a dragon, but its primary function is to do wonders and to get the people to worship the first beast. Through this imagery of the beast, we see Rome was given so much power. We see a battle is about to be unleashed through the creator God, that the creator God is also the redeemer God. This, this battle is going to happen. And the beast, he is so blasphemous and deceitful. And he, he comes along and he tries to deceive people. And he does it in a very, very subtle way often. And it says, you know, in that, that all will serve him except those that serve the lamb. So you make a choice if you're, or they may had to make a choice. Um, the Christians living in Rome, are they going to follow the beast or which you know, the beast also is given power by the dragon, or are they going to follow the lamb that was slain? It's one or the other. So the second beast is more, uh, he is a servant to the first beast. He's much more subtle. He kind of gets tied up in the economics of the time. The beast will create a mark that has to do with whether people can buy or sell, or honestly, more than that, who is going to suffer? Um, it's not a literal mark. Like, you know, Brandon was saying at the beginning, um, the, it doesn't seem like the, um, the killing and all of that seems like empire-wide, but it did seem to really flare up in different pockets. And it really whether people bowed down and worshiped the emperor or whether they worshiped the lamb, 
was a very big deal. Um, so when they made that choice to worship the lamb instead of bowing down to the emperor, it could cost them their life. It could cost people their ability to, um, you know, to, to work in Roman government and things like that. So the mark of the beast is all about allegiance. Who is their allegiance to? The lamb or to the emperor? So to me, it's just really sad and inspiring to go back and look at those Christians in Rome that were killed. They are in so many ways our heroes, and in other ways, um, you know, we, we know that we're told something similar to, we're told to take up our cross, that we're, that our path to life really is death. So I think that God is showing us what's really going on with the beast and the dragon and that we need to be men and women who also discern um, discern our own lives. Rome didn't start out very hostile towards Christians. I'm sure it was just regular life to them too. But I think the empire shows us that the beast has a way of being subtle and deceptive. And so I don't know how that impacts us but i think that's sort of the next step in our thinking after we really understand what's going on in revelation okay the next thing numbers you see numbers through the entire book of revelation don't think of numbers just as numbers john uses numbers in ways that have meaning three seven six twelve and twenty four all have meaning and have been used throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. So, for example, three is completeness, harmony, new life. Seven is about completeness, fullness. Twelve always makes us think of like the 12 tribes of Israel. Twelve is just used so often. And and often like multiples of 12. So in Revelation, you'll see 144,000. It's a, a multiplier of 12. So you'll see these numbers happen over and over. So the number I know that all of you are probably the most curious about is what is this business with 666? The number 666 has been in the one of the numbers that can really scare us a lot. Then it's the number of the beast is what it's called in Revelation. And it comes from Revelation 13, 18. And then in that verse says, this calls for wisdom. Wisdom. Let the per person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Okay, what in the world does that even mean? Well, there's been a lot made of it, and um, I was laughing because when I was listening to one of the lectures, um, Brady, the campus pastor up in Washington, he was like, I had a lock on something in my office, and I thought, what number would no one guess that I would pick? So he picked 666 so that they would not guess it, and they were like, you're joking, right? And he's like, no, I knew y'all would assume that I would never pick that number, and so I did, and no one broke into whatever it was. But um, but yeah, letters in um in Hebrew 
letters have a numerical value in Hebrew. So um, some have said it's the number of Nero Caesar, which would make sense based on Hebrew letters. The phrase is a human number, purely symbolic, meaning it's not divine. It's a contrast. So another way to interpret it is um, it's not God, it's just a person. It's the number six and not seven, because six is incomplete and seven is complete. It's the number of God. Um, so God is Trinity, and therefore, you know, the number is of the Trinity is 777. So some people have interpreted 666 as the Trinity of wickedness or the unholy Trinity. The unholy trinity in Revelation is found again in the final battle of the chapters. So the unholy trinity would be the dragon and the two beasts. And I could say so much more about that, but I am out of time. So I've got to keep powering through, but I, there's so much good stuff there. Okay, what is Armageddon? Okay, and that comes out of Revelation 16, 16. It says, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon is a place. The name means mount, and I'll just spell it for you because I'm not good at pronouncing words, but M-E-G-I-D-D-O. That's, that's what the name Armageddon means, mount What's Megino? I don't know. Megiddo? That's better. Okay. It is mentioned here, and then nothing is made of it, honestly. When the final battle comes in Revelation 19, the place honestly is irrelevant because it is the place named because it's the place named for the final great battle in Revelation. It's come to mean some sort of world-ending event in modern English. But that's not what it means in Revelation, it seems to me. There are some ideas of why John uses that name, but no one really knows. I think it's kind of like that elephant and donkey image that I used earlier. We just don't get to know exactly why he chose that name, but it did mean something to them. But that's what Armageddon means. It's just a name of the final where the final battle will happen and then last the scroll okay this scroll we see the lambs we are john is weeping over the scroll because who's worthy to open the scroll and then we go through honestly the all of these seals are broken this you know we just don't see this like happened <laughs> you know he doesn't say scroll really again that i saw but the scroll contains these two visions that are described. Jesus' followers may suffer temporarily, but it will not be the final defeat because of the lamb and his army. And then, two, uh, and then secondly, the two witnesses, the prophetic role of Jesus' followers are to call back idolaters back to the one true God. And it's interesting, yeah, that the scroll gets made a big deal of and then isn't really like, mentioned again but i know that was a lot i had to fly through it i didn't do my 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 best work but that is the best way i can describe those things that um i had to read pages about and like get it succinctly down to for you but hopefully that having 
Some of those things described for you will help you as you read through Revelation. And um, yeah, go get a couple of good commentaries and spend your life getting to know the one true God. He is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. And so don't forget that. Now I'm going to have Sarah come up and she is going to inventory, okay? So something that I think is really beneficial, no matter what you're studying, is to sort of assess what do I want to be true? Because then you're putting your biases out there for you and you can uh, you can have it have it up at the top so you know, okay, this is what I want to be true. I'm being upfront with myself and whether or not that is what's true, whatever. At least I'm being open and honest. I don't know if that makes sense. Just go with me. So when you think about Revelation or when you were reading it with your core or whatever, do you think about it um, more literally or more allegorically? Um, So maybe, you know, write that down if one of those has connected with you. Um, Did you see it as something meant to spark your imagination um, or points that were very specific uh, that you need to discern? So maybe you came from a tradition where you leaned more towards one of those things. Um, So maybe did you see Revelation as a code um, that you need to decipher for modern times? Like the beast has some sort of counterpart today and you've got to figure out what the beast is. Um, and we need to figure out like when and how all of this is going to happen. It's also possible that you had just no idea what to read or think or believe about this book. And that's okay too. You can just put a question mark or something like that. Um, so I think once you've kind of done a little bit of self-assessment, it's a really, that's a good starting place. I just think it's always good for us to be honest with ourselves. So for example, Um, If I really want it to be true that this is a literal, real event, I'm going to be honest because now I know when I read it, if I find something that points to the contrary, I, I, I remember my own bias. I don't know if that makes sense. It works for me. So maybe not if that works for you. Just help me know that that no one is nodding. Well, it makes sense for me. Okay. So. Um, this book of scripture has definitely, uh, been, you know, interpreted, misinterpreted, and confounded Christians for 2,000 years. So if it has totally confounded you, you are in really good company. So that's great. Um, So what we need to do and what we're going to try to do in this section is figure out what are kind of the, what's the baggage that we've been handed? And I mean baggage, good or bad. um, And what do we maybe want to let go of or put down? And what do we want to keep holding on to? So some of this might come from your tradition, your uh, your faith tradition. Some of it might come from like literature, English classes in school. Some of it might come from things like left behind, like Peter talked about. So we want to keep the bags in our hands that really um, serve the text and serve us well. And we're going to let go of those that maybe we don't need anymore. So we're going to start with early Christianity um, in the very beginning. I don't actually know which button to, oh, look at that. Oh, awesome. Wow. Okay. My one contribution, my one original contribution was I Googled this picture because I thought Ryan made the slide really boring. So I, if this is your favorite part, 
This was all me, so you can compliment me. Um, okay, so we're going to start very early, the very beginning of the church, like around the year 100, okay? Um, so you're there. I want you to put yourself there. I don't know. You probably would smell pretty bad. That's the only thing I really know. But um, John's letter, this letter um, to the seven churches, this book of Revelation is making the rounds and it's being shared with the churches. And if you're a Christian right now, things are looking pretty bad, okay? Pretty bleak and pretty grim. Um, no one is becoming a Christian because it looks really fun and popular and awesome. You as a Christian have decisions to weigh about how much you're going to participate in pagan traditions that are happening around you. And there's a lot of pressure on those decisions, like Mandy was saying earlier, because abstaining and not being involved in some of those decisions, like at best would make you an outsider, not very uh, easy for you to participate in society. And at worst, it could get you killed. Um, so it's not a good situation. It wasn't that long ago, again, we're in the year like 100, that Nero was an emperor um, who used people that were Christians like you are as human torches to light his dinner parties. And being martyred was not a completely unlikely prospect. Like we've talked about this evening, um, there are different instances throughout um, kind of the area that you live in where people are being persecuted and killed all over the place. So you probably um, have questioned your own resolve and your own commitment to Jesus because your life is on the line and your reputation is on the line in a very real way. So what's going to happen when you're tested? What's going to happen when and if things get a lot worse? And when is Jesus coming back anyways? When is he going to walk among you and the faithful again like he did with the originals disciple, the original disciples? And then along comes John's letter of Revelation. And it is super, super weird. Okay, so it's maybe not like some of the other letters that are circulating. Um, it sounds way more like a bizarre fever dream. The imagery is stark and it's scary and there's numbers and it's very confusing. But it's also a book about Jesus. It's about a lamb who was slain and now sits with God and he is a righteous and just ruler. So this is in really stark contrast to the leaders in Rome. So you hear these words and they really fill you with hope. One day God is returning for the faithful. So things may get bad. They may get much worse than you can imagine right now. But ultimately Jesus is returning. And this new kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated will be brought to its full completion. So for you, this book is ultimately putting a lot of courage into you as you face what is to come. It challenges you and it encourages you to be faithful despite the suffering and the persecution that may just get worse. It reminds you that what is ultimately to, co to come is much greater 
and and it comforts you um, and it, and it helps you to deal with what's going on with the Roman Empire and its citizens. It's just like a shot of courage and it helps you to take heart and to have grit. So this, um, I think, is a good way to sort of frame how some of these original hearers heard this letter. So I think it's important that we start there with how the first readers read it so that we can discern the meaning and the complexity of the letter. So we've um, alluded to Brady Bobbink a little bit. That was the history. There's nothing there, see? I don't know. Introduction. Oh, okay. Um, we've talked about him a little bit. Um, he's one of our friends up in Washington. And um, he points out that our first challenge to the modern reader um, is what did it mean to the first century recipients? We can't attempt to make the unfamiliar imagery familiar by just starting with translating to modern images, like lasers or attack helicopters or whatever. Instead, we need to make ourselves familiar enough to understand the imagery here that would have been familiar to them at the time. So whatever this book can mean for us now, it needs to first be discerned through what the Spirit inspired John to write in response to the concerns he had in the first century of Christianity. So we're going to do a fly through of the history of just how the church has dealt with this book here momentarily. Um, but first, uh, just so we're all on the same page, we're going to define some terms um, that are some of the main ideas that are sort of dealt with and contested upon from this book. So first, we're going to talk about the concept of the millennium, uh, which comes from chapter 20 of Revelation. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of it just to kind of orient us, and but I would encourage you to read the whole thing. Hopefully you've read the whole book, um, but I'm going to read a little bit of it. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So millennium theology centers around these verses and the ones surrounding it. Um, and it's one of the things that the church has argued about for hundreds of years. These um, discussions have led to a lot of division, um, sometimes denominational fracturing or just arguing. Um, so you might be surprised, given all of these uh, heated arguments, that this is the only place this is mentioned in the Bible. So all of the arguing around this comes from just one passage um, in one of the most like confusing, bizarre books to modern readers. So it's just kind of an interesting place to take such a hard and fast stance on. 
So some of you might be coming from different, in fact, I'm sure all of you are coming from different places regarding like you've never even heard of the millennium. This is brand new information to you. Um, some of you might be coming from a place where you have heard some pretty serious teaching about this. Some of you um, have been influenced by teaching about this, even if you've never heard the term, okay? So ideas have consequences. What we believe has an effect on how we act and behave. So talking about these things, even though if you're anything like me, uh, you would prefer that things were just sort of like simple and straight to the point. This is not necessarily one of those things. And you might be asking yourself, like, why does this matter? It does, and I hope that I can convince you of that. Uh, but first, I'm going to, yeah, define some terms. Um, so there are different concepts and different takes on the millennium situation. Um, these verses talk about binding up of Satan for a thousand years and that the faithful of God will be a part of this first resurrection of the dead and will reign with Jesus for a thousand years. So we've got uh, a few different ideas about this millennium. The first is historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism. So pre, as in we are living before the millennium that's just that we just read about. So this is the view that's held by the majority of the early church. Like most of the early church fathers in the first century, this is what they believed. Um, they blah, blah, blah. So in this view, Jesus comes back in the flesh to rule for a literal 1,000 years. There is peace and Satan is bound up and he can't cause trouble. And the faithful of God get to rule alongside Jesus during this time. Then when that time period is up, it's been a thousand years, Satan is freed for a final confrontation where he's defeated in this battle and dealt with forever. So that is pre-millennialism. That one's pretty straightforward. It's just pre-millennial. You get it. Okay, next is a-millennialism. A-millennialism. So the A, you know, uh, if you're familiar with your pre-words, I don't remember what that is, um, is in um, not or against a literal millennium. So it's no millennium. Um, this view rose from a perspective that interprets the 1,000 years figuratively. So they believe that we are living in this time period that is being referred to in the passage as this 1,000 years, and that it stands for the time in between Jesus ascending and his return. So it's saying this isn't like a literal 1,000 years. Uh, the 1,000 is almost like, you know, irrelevant, whatever, we're, but we're living in it right now. It hinges on the idea that Jesus, with his death and resurrection, inaugurated the kingdom of God. And that in this in-between time, before he comes back, Jesus reigns in the heavenly realm. And by the spirit, his followers on earth spread the gospel. And thereby the kingdom during this time period before the final consummation of the new heavens and the new earth and God's eternal kingdom. So there's still victories for the spread of the gospel. And Satan is unable to prevent all of that um, and is therefore bound in that sense. Uh, but he won't be ultimately defeated until the return of Jesus to the earth. So that is a millennialism. So we've covered pre, which means there will be a millennium. It's not yet. A, which means 
we're sort of in this time. This is the millennium, so to speak. And then post-millennialism. Post-millennialism and post-millennialists, um, so post, again, your prefixes, okay? So it's referring to the starting point of the millennium being in the past. There's a lot of things I keep seeing, whatever. So like, so like a millennialists, they believe in this figurative interpretation of a thousand years, okay? But whereas the amillennial view holds that until Jesus returns, there's going to be a lot of back and forth and like victory for the gospel, but also suffering and losses, postmillennials believe that over time, the church will become more and more victorious in spreading the gospel. So more and more of the world will be saved suffering of the church and persecution will fade. And after a period of peace, people living by the word of God all over the world and prosperity of the church and the gospel, Jesus will return. So they will often cite the great commission as a key verse. This idea that the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth and this view has fueled a lot of missionary work and evangelistic thinking that, um, that many of you who have grown up in the church have been impacted by without even realizing it. So that's what I mean by even if you've never heard these terms, pre, a, and post-millennialism, if you grew up in any sort of faith tradition, you and your teachers' uh, preaching and teaching was probably affected by their view of the millennium, even if they never used the word outright. Another term that we need to talk about is dispensationalism dispensationalism. Okay, so this might confuse you a little bit because it confused me a little bit. So we're going to do, and I'm way smarter than you. So I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. So, um, so I'm going to try to explain as best I can. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, or concerns, we'll put Ryan Bristow's contact up here. Um, so dispensationalism is the belief that there are distinct dispensations, you're dispensing, um, where God interacts with people differently. Okay. So, for example, God interacted with Israel in one way, and then uh, those, all that stuff didn't really work out. Uh, so he's going to interact with the Christians in a new way. He's dispensing his grace and his communication differently, because this way it didn't, didn't really work out. Um, it's, uh, it builds on the historic premillennialism. But Christ, but this part where it builds on it, uh, Christ will return before the seven years of tribulation to rapture the church. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. These are really bizarre concepts. Okay, like, can we just acknowledge that? Like, I feel a little bit cuckoo standing up here, but I also because I found out I was doing this this morning. Okay, um, so, so dispensationalism deals with God's promises to Israel. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So what's interesting is like, if you pay attention at all to like modern current day politics, Israel comes up a lot in U.S. American politics. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. This is part of the reason why. Okay. So part of this thinking, um, what part of how this thinking came about was trying to deal with scriptures in the Old Testament about God's promises to the nation of Israel and conceiving of how those promises would be fulfilled. So in their view, in the view of a dispensationalist, 
God is dealing with the church now, then when the rapture happens, there's a new era or a new dispensation that starts and God will restart his promises that were put on pause for the nation of Israel. So like the temple will be rebuilt and they will reoccupy the land they were promised. I saw one girl make a confused face. So thank goodness someone is paying attention. So basically it's like, I'm God, I'm over here and I'm dealing with Israel and I'm going to fulfill these promises to you, but that isn't really working out. So these are Christians. I'm going to deal with them now. This is, uh, this is good. I'm doing this. You guys are going to have to wait. Okay, Israel, I'm doing this. And then we're going to rule for a thousand years and then I'll come back over here and the temple will be rebuilt. So that's why like in some um, political arenas, there's a really intense um, protection of the physical nation of Israel and the Jews continuing to like occupy and reign there. Because the idea is like, God's been dealing with Christians and then he's going to come back over here and he's going to do all those things he said he would do to Israel. So we've got to make sure Israel stays Israel. Do you understand what I'm saying a little bit? Okay. Um, so blah, blah, blah. So, okay. It's important to grasp that this is from like a very specific interpretive framework of the scriptures. So it comes from a place with a very valid and difficult question that Paul addresses and grapples with in the New Testament. So it's how do we interpret the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel when now the people of God are not limited to a nation, a people group, a specific geographical area, but for all people who call Jesus Lord? How do we do that? So... Uh, and, and again, Paul deals with a lot of this in, in the New Testament of the church being grafted into this tree that was the people of Israel. So again, um, this will sound familiar to you if you or your parents or whatever um, read the Left Behind series, which is a fictional book based on a dispensationalist framework of the end times. So that's crazy. Um, so the important thing to highlight here is that this is a very specific and very recent um, theological interpretation. Very recent. It has had an enormous impact in a very short amount of time. So it was conceived of in the mid to late 1800s and rose to prominence in the 1900s. So out of the 2,000 years of the church, um, it's been around for the last 150 years, which is less than 10% for math. So it's very new. Um, it gained a ton of traction around the Cold War because nuclear annihilation was this looming threat. And economically, there was a lot of concern. And uh, there, so there was a lot about this view that was very appealing. Um, in a time that was so scary to so many, this theology was very appealing. It allowed people to frame their fear in this context that, yes, Nuclear war could happen and there could be a great tribulation, but it's okay because those who are Christians will be raptured out of the world before that goes down. It is very appealing to people who are facing the prospect of immense suffering unless they are believers and can be spared of all of that. Um, so all of that doesn't fully do dispensational theology justice, but um, we need to talk about it even a little bit, blah, blah, blah. So the effects of this worldview have affected us a lot in two ways. So one is um, 
the relationship with modern evangelicals believe they have with the modern nation of Israel. So that's what I was talking about earlier. We've got to support it. We've got to uh, protect it as a nation unquestioningly, not just ideologically, but militaristically or militarily. I don't know what word. So uh, this has affected Christian Americans' views on foreign policy. So if you've ever been like, why do we care? This is why we care. Crazy. Or why do people care? I don't know who we is. Just why do the people? Why do some people? I don't know. Um, and they believe that they need to elect candidates that are very pro-Israel. Um, the second is the modern Christian view on this idea called the rapture. Um, and it has really like made people anxious, very scared, very, very spooky, spooky. Because like even right now in this room, like we'll look up and 50% of you are gone. Your clothes are still here or something. You're, you get raptured naked. I don't know. So it's the it's the taking up of, of believers to meet Jesus. That's what the rapture is. If you've never heard of that, that's what it is. Um, and uh, so they are taken up and they leave behind all of these non-believers um, who don't know Christ. This is not an idea found in Revelation, actually, but it always comes up when we're talking about Revelation. So that's why I'm talking about it here. Um, there's two to three passages in scripture that are used to really prop it up. Um, the most prominent one, am I ringing? The most prominent one is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, so Paul is addressing believers in Thessalonica who were worried about their relatives or friends who had died and believed in Jesus. Um, so he says, according to the Lord's word, we will tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another, one another with these words. The second comes from a passage in the Gospels in Matthew. A part of it says, two men will be out in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding a handmill, and one will be taken and the other left. And finally, the third is thirst Corinthians. First Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So this is where we get the concept of the rapture from these verses. Um, different people will argue for when exactly this happens. Does it happen before the seven years of tribulation, like the dispensationalists believe, or does it happen after? Um, does it happen at the halfway point when the Antichrist takes power? So it's very contentious, very bizarre. Lots of words that you don't use in any other realm of your life. Um, so there's a lot to unpack. Um, this passage in Matthew um, and the corresponding one in Luke were for a long time assumed to be using language of people being taken as signifying taken up to heaven in rapture. But now a majority of scholars, even dispensationalists, have backed off seeing this text as referring to people being taken up heaven to heaven. And instead, that people being taken away are actually being people taken to judgment. So that's a flip it and reverse it. That's pretty crazy. Um, I'm going to skip, skip, skip a little bit for the sake of time. So I think it's understandable that there's a lot of different interpretations in trying to grapple with this rapture thing. Um, 
It's so interesting talking from someone else's notes, and I, I wouldn't wish that on any of you, but I'm doing it. Um, so, so this is an area where we lack the same sort of like image bank, like Mandy was talking about, um, that first century Christians would have. N.T. Wright talks about this passage as being very much a rich, descriptive picture Paul is painting with images and callbacks that would have been familiar to the hearers at the time, but is easily lost on us. So there's callbacks to Daniel 7, where suffering faithful people of God are vindicated and raised to sit with God. I am going to be done with talking about the rapture now, okay? There's more I could say, more Ryan would say, but I am not Ryan. So we're going to talk a little bit about throughout history. What? Okay, so throughout history, buckle your seatbelts. We're doing this fast. So uh, we've talked about a lot of different things. Um, and we, we've only covered a hundred years. Okay. And it's the year 2022. So, uh, I'm not going to go through every single century, but I will later if you want me to just kidding. I won't. Um, so there have been a lot of shifts in understanding of this book throughout the years. And we have to think about what's going on in culture and in the rest of the world during that time. History is a lot to study. There have been like a lot of people and a lot has happened. And then trying to read the scripture in the scope of all of that history is crazy. Um, so for the first couple of hundred years, the historic premillennial view was very popular. Okay. There was a lot of suffering and persecution. Um, but then as the church rose in popularity and started to get more prominent and acceptable, people started to question Jesus' return as being right around the corner. So we see a shift because maybe the reign of the king is happening right now. Constantine, for example, he made Christianity accepted and the church was formalizing and restructuring itself a lot. So maybe this great era of the church Maybe this is the 1,000 year reign when Jesus in heaven and his faithful here on earth are carrying out the gospel. That sounds like amillennialism. You know what I'm saying? So these views were all affected by what was going on around them. Origen and Augustine are two church fathers. Even if you've never heard their names, they've affected your lives as Christians profoundly. Um, them and other people like them in the 200s and 300s influenced the interpretation of Revelation to varying degrees um, of less literal readings of the 1,000 years or other symbols throughout. They also had influence from Platonic, meaning like of Plato, not like we're just friends, um, from Platonic um, thought, it seems, where the physical was viewed as inferior to the spiritual. So there's at least some like correlation at play between like Plato's views and how they're starting to interpret the scriptures. Do you get what I'm saying? Um, so then I'm jumping forward a bunch of years um, in the time of the Reformation, um, where people like Luther were having serious concerns about the Catholic Church at the time. Um, Luther interpreted that the Catholic Church as the woman riding on the beast in Revelation 17, and the Pope himself as the beast. Things got crazy. Um, the Catholic Church viewed Luther as the Antichrist. From the various Protestant communities that came as the false prophet. So things got bad, okay? D 
different cults and sects of the church have over and over again used the symbology and prophetic imagery to predict the end, often down to the exact day. And it has led to very bizarre radicalizations. The results can vary. It can be like as benign as a group of people who are like sweaty going out to the desert to make sure they're in the right spot at the right time for the return of Jesus. Two extremes like David Koresh leading a cult to a deadly standoff in Waco in 1993. Yeah, that was Ryan. So Ryan did really good. I'm not saying any of this to be dismissive. Um, and I'm not saying that all interpretations are just based on human beings like reacting to their specific time. Um, I'm saying because I think it should humble us greatly when we approach this topic. And that's the blank, or I don't know if it's a blank. That's the, that's what I'm saying. That was all of that to say. Revelation takes a lot of humility. Um, so remember how at the very beginning I had you write out like where you stand and what you believe. Okay. Um, wherever that is, you need to reckon with the fact that you're with a large company of people who throughout the long road of history have been just as, or more sure um, of, of what they believe and history has shown their assurance to be misplaced. Okay. That is not even to mention the fact, okay. That what I really think you have to reckon with is that Jesus himself says about predicting the date and hour quote, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. No. And that's a direct quote from the Gospels. So if you're in the predicting camp, you have to face that verse. People will claim that the Holy Spirit told them this is when this is happening. But you're telling me that Jesus himself was not benefited that revelation, but your scrub self was? Ryan used the word hubris. The hubris we have sometimes is shocking. I don't know what that means, so I called you a scrub. So if God was going for like clear, precise communication that we could use to predict and know everything we ought to do, then we got a very bad book. God did a bad job, okay, if that's what we think. Um, it is about as confusing and opaque as it gets in scripture for that purpose. So what if instead... We come to Revelation asking those, wait, what? No, we don't. <laughs> what if we weren't coming to Revelation asking those questions and instead came to it admitting we have no idea what exactly will transpire? What else could this book teach us that maybe we don't think to ask? What has it taught the church throughout history? One of the main things that is happening in Revelation that most scholars agree on is its use of imagery to critique the empire of the time, namely Rome. The Roman Empire was a sprawling, powerful, and often extremely evil instrument of influence in the time of Revelation's writing. The, be the beliefs of the Roman Empire stood in direct opposition to God. They believed that the gods had chosen Rome that Rome and its agents were instruments of the will of these gods, and that in order to be in right standing with these gods, all must submit to Rome's rule. It was an alternate religion run by the state. 
One commentator writes, Revelation is therefore a theological and political text. It makes claims about who is truly God and about right and wrong connections between God and the socio-political order. It challenges the political theology of empire and the religious ideology that underwrites it. And it reveals God and the Lamb alone as the true sovereign one, source of all blessings and proper object of worship. Revelation then is a book about who is really God and what does that one true God look like? The evil of the empire whose methods of violence and domination under the guise of worshiping a false God are revealed to be what they are, a beast, ugly and grotesque. While the ways of Jesus, the true and ultimate king, are portrayed with the symbol of a lamb slain. It's about what we should worship and what a beast looks like. Revelation is about worship. We have to wrestle with and realize that the scary part of this book is what happens to the empire. What happens to those who follow the beast, who have its mark and who look like it. There's a strong warning of judgment there. The faithful were encouraged by this book because Revelation depicts that no matter what happens, God is going to take care of the people of God. He will come. He will set things right. He will enact justice. And ultimately, he will establish his good and beautiful kingdom in the palace of whatever grotesque forms of power are at play in the world. Whoever's coming up to speak next, I think it's Brandon. Start making your way up here while I wrap this up. Um, so the question for us to is, do we have that framework in our minds as we look around at our context and how we live and operate within it? We live in one of the most prosperous, we live in the most prosperous, powerful nation in the world. Some would call it an empire or argue for its imperial characteristics. At the very least, I think that should make us uncomfortable. Do I think John was writing about this moment, this time and place, the U.S. of A. right now? No. But he doesn't have to be thinking of us to describe something beastly that has recognizable parallels to our context. That's the kind of thing we have to wrestle with. Man, there was a lot of good stuff. Listen, I'm going to read you this quote. The Empire... The empire addressed in Revelation consists of three inseparable components, all of which are challenged by the book. Political domination, religion in which the political order is identified with the divine, and economic networks that favored the elite and permitted human exploitation. Yikes. Revelation is therefore a visionary critique of the beastly side of empire, the deification of human power, and the seamy side of commerce. Oof. I know. Ooh. It is more important for us to see Revelation as a critique of secular power wherever and however it expresses itself oppressively, and especially as a critique of such power that is deemed sacred and granted devotion and allegiance. Mm -mm -mm. So we need to be asking ourselves, where do my allegiances lie? Where are my allegiances? Um, am I 100% in allegiance to God's kingdom over and above any earthly kingdom? And I'm going to leave you with that. And now, Ben. All right, stand up, wiggle. We got one last, one last sprint here. All right, all right, let's sit down. One more sprint.
So, um, um, but I want to just kind of talk about the point and and try to draw some specific pastoral messages for us today. If you want to go deeper in this, which I definitely recommend, especially if it's piquing your interest, um, whether that's because it's still scary to you or whatever, um, you know, there's some great resources. We gave you some in your packet. We are going to upload, we've, we've quoted from Brady Bobbink a number of times. We're going to upload his talks on this to probably our like Spotify and YouTube this week. Um, and so you can go deeper in that. The Baymont podcast has uh, a great series. I think there's like 16 episodes on this. Um, so some great things that you can look at there. Um, but I want to move into to three pastoral points for our community. Hopefully these will be relatable. And I just encourage you to ask the Spirit right now to open your ears, to help you listen, especially since we're tired. So three movements in our thinking that I think can be helpful as we look at this book. The first is that we need to move from petrifying to pastoral. We need to learn how to take revelation from a frightening, over-the-top, fantastical kind of book to an encouraging book that has applications for how we live life now. We avoid this book often because we think it's over our heads. It's strange and it's frightening. We've all heard these end-of-the-world messages, the scare tactics, and as Sarah talked about, the labeling of the different political figures as the beast or some other thing. And, and even, uh, even as recently as Trump and Obama, I was hearing this on both sides. So it's not surprising when you go back and again hear the Pope and Luther calling each other these names. Um, it's just, it's, it's easy, easy to go to. But there are two things that we need to understand in order to read Revelation correctly. And the first is that we need to uh, recognize the true meaning of prophecy. That prophecy is about bringing an immediate practical life application in light of the future. So it's not so much about telling us the future, though it does that to a, uh, to a degree, but it's not about predicting and picking the time and that kind of stuff. Often that makes you miss the whole point. It's not just predictive future looking. Uh, there's no room for procrastination in prophecy. So your mom was giving you a prophetic message when you were younger and she would say, clean your room or I'll take away your phone, right? There was an immediate action that was required, but she was also hinting at what the future would look like, whether those actions were followed through on or not. And so it's that kind of thing that is happening in prophetic literature in the scripture. So Revelation tells us how to live right now so that we're on the right side when the end comes. Hear me? It's how to live right now so that you can be on the right side of things when the end comes. And then the second is that we have to read through the lens of what would this have meant to its original hearers. And we're hitting this, this note over and over again tonight because this is a huge part of how we want to teach you to read every book of the Bible. That we want to start with what it meant in the time and place where God chose to put it, right? He didn't choose for Revelation to be written now or here. He chose for it to be written then and there. And so what does it mean to take God's choices seriously? 
more seriously than we take ourselves. So we, we take it seriously where he put it, and then we try to extrapolate its message for us. Revelation had an immediate application and was understandable to them back then as well as to us. So it doesn't make sense for John to write cryptic messages to the first century churches about helicopters and American presidents. Revelation was not nonsense for 2,000 years, only coming to make sense now. How, how arrogant can we be that we think the whole world revolves around us and all of time obviously revolves around us? This is what happens in our, our Revelation theologizing. Revelation has been actively applicable for the last 2,000 years. And if we aren't reading it in ways that could minister to Christians in all times and places, we're probably reading it wrong. Because as the King James Version puts 1 Corinthians 14, 33, I love this. He says, for God is not the author of confusion. God is not the author of confusion. And so he wasn't confusing most Christians throughout all times and places, except us, the lucky few. And as Sarah said, every group of Christians over the past 2,000 years who disagreed with that statement has been wrong so far. And if we're right, it'll be because we're lucky, not because we're smart. Right? Broken clocks right a couple times a day. Um, so what are some of the pastoral messages here? You know, one, we can learn the proper response to being in God's presence which is things like 117, that we fall on our face in holy fear of God. In 4.8, we see constant worship. In, in 4.9-11, giving glory and honor and thanks, laying down our crowns at his feet. In 5, singing songs of worship to him. People have noted that outside of the book of Psalms, Revelation is the book that talks about worship the most in the entire Bible. And yet, I don't think we often think of it as a place that informs and shapes the way we worship God. Number two, we can learn alongside the seven churches that we find in chapters two and three. And I know this has been a place that has really enriched my faith over the years. I know there have been multiple times with different cores I was in where we would take one of these a week and, and try to think about what, what are the messages, because it is a little bit clearer and more direct. But to Ephesus, you know, from them we learn that the Lord blesses hard work and perseverance, but that he also cares about the heart, that he wants us to return to our first love, that he wants us to stay true to Jesus, not just work for him. From Smyrna, we learn that it's blessed to remain faithful even through pain and suffering and fear and death because the Lord is going to be victorious. The church at Pergamum, we can learn alongside them not to allow false teachings to spring up among us, but to be careful about that. That, that when they do, we have to repent and hold true to the Lord's teachings, which means that we have to know the Lord's teachings. That can be particularly applicable today. From Thyatira, we learn not to tolerate cults, not to tolerate sexual immorality in our midst, not to tolerate false teachings. 
that we can't hold to the teachings of our culture. We have to hold to God's teachings. He tells Sardis, he says something that, that I think can be so powerful to us that he tells him your outside doesn't match your inside, right? It's time to wake up to remember what you received and heard, to hold fast to those original things. Repent. Don't get lazy in your faith. It's not good enough to just put on a show. It has to be through and through. He tells the church at Philadelphia to endure patiently, to hold on to what you have. He doesn't even criticize them. He just says, hold on, I'm coming. I'm coming soon. And some of us need to hear that message. To Laodicea, you know, this church that was self-proclaimed so rich and impressive and had it all together. But he says, you're lukewarm. You're about to be vomited out, rejected. Be earnest and repent. Jesus is knocking at the door. We don't have time to unpack them, but take time to ponder one of those a day this week. They won't all apply to you right now, but ask God if any one of them is a letter to you right now. Is there something he wants to say as he ends each of those little letters? If you have ears, listen to what the Spirit's saying. And then third, we learn to stay awake because Jesus is coming soon. In 16, Jesus says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. See, this is how we know that rapture nakedness thing is wrong. No, yes. He takes your clothes with you. You don't want to be naked when the rapture happens. So, um, and in 22, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they've done. It's not the only time this soon language, but we see this thing of be ready. So what is Revelation's message for you today? Do you need to wake up, repent, reignite your love for Jesus? Or maybe you're going through pain or suffering or fear, and you need to remember our Lord's power and his complete and assured victory. Maybe you need to fall at his feet in worship, and you haven't done that in a while. Rhett and I have been taking a class on the Eastern Orthodox Church, and one of the things that they talk about is that in the way they think of worship is that every time they join together as a community of worship, that they are joining in this heavenly worship service that has been going on all along. And so that each time we enter a time of worship, we participate with all the saints in all the times and all the places. And that that's what this word communion is really getting at. A little bit bigger than the way I think of it sometimes. A powerful message. Are you on the right side of the battle? Are you on Jesus's side? Or are you trying to sit on the sidelines and see who might come out ahead? What action do you need to take in light of this prophetic message? Because it's a message for today. And then the second movement in our thinking is from horror to hope. So parts of Revelation are legitimately terrifying, regardless of whether they're symbolic or literal. There are beasts, there are natural disasters, and all mankind rising against each other in horrifying wars. And this should evoke a sense of horror in us as we look at the state of the world around us. 
it is cause for grief. And we, we know from this that it may get worse before Jesus comes back. It's horrible to think about that. I want to read this final battle to you from chapter 19. And I want you to just close your eyes and listen and imagine what's happening. Because that's, again, how I think this book is meant to be experienced. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried and in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who'd received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Okay, you can open your eyes. See, this is, this is our hope. It's a gross scene, but this is our hope. All the kings of the earth gather to wage war against Jesus. This book has been building and building and building, and you think this epic battle is about to take place. If you were reading a fantasy novel, the epic battle would be about to take place. But in one sentence, with the sword of his mouth, Jesus speaks, and it's over. Just like in Genesis, when he speaks and it all begins. See, we need to understand this, that nothing will stand against God, our God. I love that in verse 14, the armies of heaven, all of his faithful followers are there, ready for battle, dressed in white. What a great battle color, right? You know, it's just a terrible idea. We're going to all look like targets. You can't get anything on white, can't get anything out of it. But the thing is, we don't fight. Jesus does it all. See, this, this does not end with a picture of us fighting for Jesus. He is the great deliverer, and that is John's message. And this would have been so comforting to the churches that John was writing to. Their world felt out of control. They were overcome with horror and desperate for hope. Eugene Peterson describes it like this. He says, they were facing a minor skirmish in the ongoing cosmic spiritual battle, but they cannot see the vast scope of the war between God and Satan. The message to them is this, God will triumph. Those in faithful service to him will share in the victory. 
Even though the outcome seems doubtful, Jesus is in firm control. So this is our hope, that in the end, Jesus wins. No one who stands against him will be left standing. He has full control, always has, always will. And when he comes, he will bring true justice and right everything that is wrong in the world. So Revelation asks, whose side are you on? Which side are you going to line up on? Is your allegiance with Jesus ready and waiting for him to set everything right again? Or is your allegiance with something else, someone else? And this also begs the question of what is your hope based on? Is it on Jesus? Or is it on things like your major or your family or your personality or your hard work? What are the things that have framed our hope? Do you have hope? Or are you hung up on scars from your past? Or are you hung up on fears of the future, of never doing enough or never becoming whoever you think you have to be? The pastoral message here is it doesn't matter. Whatever the world throws at you, God wins. He will raise you up. He will clothe you in white because you aren't the one fighting. And then he will win the battle without lifting a finger with just a word from his mouth. So I want to take a couple of minutes before we move on to my final point to just read to you a little bit from Revelation. And again, I want you to close your eyes and take it in in the way that they would have taken it in, allowing it to be this completely sensory experience. Imagine the things described in detail. Imagine what it would have felt like to see some of these creatures. Let the Holy Spirit reveal things to you, and I hope the book will minister to you now. So go ahead and close your eyes and start imagining. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. One of the angels said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. I didn't see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. 
the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So right where you're at, just with the couple of people around you, I want you to just respond briefly to what you heard. Did a specific image, idea, or word speak to you and stand out while you were listening? We'll just take just a minute for that, and then we'll wrap up. You got me? Okay. My last point is that we need to go from fearful to focused. We've already talked so much about how Revelation is not just a future-telling book or a book to fear because we're on Jesus' side. But this can't just be a relieving message without action. It has implications for us right now, the things that we ought to be focused on. Revelation 3.3 says, Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. See, these truths should guide every aspect of our lives as we wait for his return. We need to live life focused on the future while being proactive in the present. Ask the Spirit to show you what this looks like personally for you, and then go do it. I have some questions. Yeah. Are you living like Jesus is coming back soon? Or are you lazy in your faith? Are you living as an overcomer, trusting that he will triumph and holding on through whatever the world throws at you? Or are you living defeated, racked by anxiety and fear about the future? Are we taking each opportunity to tell others about him so that they can be on the right side when he returns? Or are we so caught up in our own busy lives that we ignore the imminent impact that Jesus' return will have on other people? There's an absolute certainty in Revelation about Jesus returning, and the word that's used over and over again is soon. 
It's been announced in heaven already. And in Revelation, things that are announced in heaven come to pass on earth. Do you remember how chapters before Babylon falls in this thing, an eagle flies through heaven announcing Babylon has fallen? And there's this sense that whatever gets proclaimed in heaven will come to pass here. The book ends with Jesus telling us three times that he's coming soon. In chapter 22, verses 7 and 12, he says, look, I am coming soon. Look, I am coming soon. And then in 20, yes, I am coming soon. And this soon means suddenly or imminently. See, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't go far away. That's not the point. He didn't completely disengage with the world. He's nearby. He's already among us in veiled form. The apocalypse, the revelation, means pulling back the veil, peeking behind the veil. It's a disclosure. See, Jesus will come quickly because he is so close already. His last coming is simply his pushing aside the veil. Are you ready for it? The last thing Jesus calls himself in this book is in 22.16. And he says, I'm the bright morning star. Last blank, I think. Why? Why end here? The morning star appears between two and three at night when the darkness has reached its darkest state. There's no sign of morning yet, and that can feel like a hopeless time. But when you see the bright morning star, you know that the night will end and that day is coming. Our hope is nearby, just behind the curtain. Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. God, this is a, it's been a race to try to uh, think deeply about this book in these few hours. And I know there's more here than any one of us can absorb. I prepped a lot of this and I can't absorb all of it. And so we just trust that your spirit is moving and that you would help us to hear what it is that you want to say to us. Um, but I pray that as we come out of this, that we wouldn't be afraid of this book, but that we would be spurred on to study and learn, and that the ultimate result would be uh, that we would be ready, more ready than ever, to bring glory and praise and honor and thanks to you for who you are, for what you've promised to do. This world is so messed up, um, and if there's anything that all the politics and wars and everything have taught us, it's that we are incapable of fixing what we've screwed up. And so uh, we just put our hope in you, uh, one who's so much bigger, so much smarter, so much wiser, so much better and kinder and gentler and fiercer. And we just ask that you would set things to right. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. Amen. You guys have a great night.